Next, on Lectures in History, Dickinson College professor Jim Heffler teaches a class about end-of-life care and perceptions of death in the United States since the 1800s. He explores how changes in medical practices and technology have extended life expectancy, but argues that in recent decades, Americans have become removed from death through hospitals and funeral homes. So today we've got these policy riddles and managing death. And the idea here is we're going to try to look back in history and try to understand what the answers to some of these riddles are related to managing death. So the first thing we need to do is figure out what these riddles are. And some we, we talked about these mostly, uh, well, a little bit last Monday, uh, but uh, we'll go through them real quick and then we'll get into the history part. Number one is a riddle having to do with advanced directives. So what are advanced directives? They're legally binding guidance. They usually come as a living will or a durable power of attorney for health care about what medical procedures you might want at the end of life. So that's what an advanced directive is. And uh, an advanced directive helps you manage death. Okay? So the, the deal is, in 1900, you just died. There was almost nothing a doctor could do for you. And we'll get into that in a minute. But today, many people, many people, two-thirds of people die after a decision is made to withhold or withdraw a life-sustaining treatment. And what are those? Those are CPR. You guys all know what that is. Tube feeding, that's what we're going to talk about on, on Monday. Uh, antibiotics, chemo, radiation surgery, transfusions. These are the kinds of things that two-thirds of Americans say, yeah, I'm done, I don't want that anymore, and then they finally die. So the picture looks like this. So one-third of us will just fall over dead or we'll get hit by a UPS truck or something, right? And then these other two-thirds will have to make a decision. And it's these last, this last third that's in particular, they need advanced directives. Because this other group right here, the competent group, they can, they can make those decisions themselves. They're awake, they're competent, they're able to participate. But for this other group, they might have advanced senile dementia or they may be sedated seriously and they can't really participate. So that's where you get those advanced directives, help decide what that person will get given what their wishes are. Okay, so, thing is, advanced directives, these documents are legal in every single state and have been since 1990. So we're coming up on 30 years, okay? It's not a new idea. 90% of Americans think advanced care planning is a good idea. But only 37% actually complete these documents. And many of them are not well completed, they're half done, they're wrong, a lot of mistakes are made. And the other thing is only 30% of people actually talk to members of their family. And you say, well, what? why would I care whether you talk to your members of your family? This, this legal document is legal only in a theoretical sense, right? So, uh, so Taj, if... Uh, if uh, uh, you're married and you have something in your document and you don't tell your spouse, uh, uh, you, your spouse can override what you wanted. And uh, say you don't want CPR. So when it comes time for them to, to uh, when it comes time for that decision, you have a DNR and your, your spouse could come along and say, yeah, no, I'm not ready to let him go. I, I want to I keep going. And even though you've written this document, they'll listen to your spouse. So the thing is, you've got to talk to your spouse, make sure she understands that this is what I really want. By the way, raise your hand if you are an organ donor. Organ donor, okay. Keep your hand up if you told your parents about this. Excellent, great. Okay, hands down. You know why this is important? Because if you do get hit by that UPS truck, and you're essentially brain dead, and they go to your parents, and they say your son, your daughter is an organ donor, they'll ask them. And if they say, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it, or I didn't know he was an organ donor, I don't think that's a good idea, they won't take the organs. 
All right? So even though it's legally binding, and actually in Pennsylvania, the organ donation law says they can take your organs without asking, but they never do. Right? Because they don't want to get sued by your parents. They don't want to get in. So they just say, to heck with it. And as a result, six people die every single day in this country because they don't have organs, a sufficient supply. And oftentimes, there's plenty of organs out there, but the loved one says, no, no, I can't do it. So that's why this conversation is really kind of important. Okay, since nobody does this, or only about a third of the people do it, and they don't talk to their families about it. This is where Taj comes in. Paul finds wide gap between the care patients want and what they get at the end of life. And sometimes it's because they didn't do a document. Sometimes they did it and didn't tell anybody. And then the family comes in and changes everything. And it, there's just a lot of problems with that. So riddle number one is, why is it that even though two-thirds of Americans will die a managed death, Advanced directives are legal in every state. 90% think it's a good idea, but most people don't do it. And most people don't get what they want. This is 30 years now, and still people don't get what they want. That's riddle number one. Riddle number two, quality of death. So this is uh, something you saw last Monday. This is the annual health spending per person per year at the 12 most developed countries in the world. And you don't see the United States on there because that's the number one. And it's $10,224 a year ago per person, per year. And it's more than twice the mean of all the other countries. So to set the stage, we know that the United States spends a lot on health care. Here's something else. Those same 12 countries, here's your life expectancy. Right? And it's best in Japan, goes all the way down to the UK at 82, so 84 down to 81, and then the United States at 79. We spend twice the mean, and people are dying earlier here. Not only are they dying earlier, oh, there's one other thing I have here. What, what do these seven countries have in common? South Korea, Chile, Chile, Guadalupe, Slovenia, French Guiana, Lebanon, and Cuba. You're right. Who said that? They all rank higher in life expectancy. We're lower than those countries. We're lower than Cuba. Nothing against Cuba, but it's, uh, it's a little odd. So then when you die, here's the data. You saw some of this the other day, too. 1998 to 2010. And 2010 is the most recent year. They have this massive hundreds of thousands of records they've looked through and uh, uh, found out what symptoms people have at the end of life. Moderate to severe pain. It's the thing that most of us worry about. Uh, uh, and, and the thing is, we can, you know, hospice and palliative care physicians will tell you they can manage all but about 2% of pain. So there's no reason to be in pain as a rule. But 52% say they are in moderate to severe pain at the end of life. And it's worse than it was in 1998. So we're going backwards. Same with depression, 57%. Same with air hunger. This is that thing where you caught your breath and you can't get your breath, and it's a really scary thing. Uh, anorexia, uh, inability to take in food and keep it down, a lot of nausea. Only thing we're getting better at is frequent vomiting, and that's not really a big deal. I mean, only 12% have it anyway. Last thing on this, quality of end-of-life care is a survey done by the Economist Intelligence Unit. They're, it's like U.S. News and World Report for the world, right? They've got all of these standards about, you know, and they go through, and you can see the t two top end-of-life care quality countries in the world are Australia and U.K. And what, what's that mean? It means they go in and they ask people, do you suffer from these symptoms? Did you get what you want? Are you satisfied with your care? And uh, UK is number one, Australia is number two, and then we're way off to the right. All those countries that spend less than us are ahead of us, except for France, Canada. So we're number nine there. So riddle number two, quality of death, why is it even though the US spends more on healthcare and we have a really low life expectancy compared to other countries, and uh, end-of-life care symptoms are bad and getting worse. 
and the U.S. ranks very low on end-of-life care. So that's riddle number two. Riddle number three, end-of-life care training. This is a short one, but here's the top, 12, uh, top 10 uh, medical schools in the world, and uh, you know, we're proud to say that the United States has eight of the 10. UK and Canada have a couple of them, but here again, Australia, UK, number one and number two, and then we're all the way down at 14. So we have really, really good schools, but they're not teaching much about end-of-life care. And so why is it that the top eight of the top 10 schools are here, but the training is so poor? If we're so good, why do we do such a bad job at this? Last riddle, physician aid in dying. So this is your data. So the data you went out and collected for us, uh, asking students, we had uh, 313 responses at nine this morning. And the curve looks a lot like the United States. I thought it'd be a little shifted more to the right, but you guys are just about peg on where the United States, where most people are in support. There's a pretty good chunk of you, about a quarter of you in the middle, and very few on the other side. So only 14% only feel badly about this idea of physician aid and dying. So this is what it looks like in the United States. About two-thirds, between uh, uh, between two-thirds and three-quarters over the course of the last 20 years say that physician aid and dying is okay. But that red bar, that's the number of people who live in a state where they can take advantage of physician-assisted death. So it's only 18%, even though the vast majority of Americans have, over the course of time, supported this idea. So there's your states, Washington, Oregon, Cal uh, California, Colorado, Hawaii, D.C. and Vermont. Montana also by court ruling. It was not a law, but they are in that cluster of states. Okay, here's your last riddle, physician aid and dying. Why is it that even though support for assisted suicide remains strong, you only got seven out of 50 states, about 18% of the population covered? Okay, so here's our four riddles. Advanced directives, bad. Quality of death, bad. Uh, end of life care training, that's bad. And then finally, physician aid and dying, that's bad. So here we go with history. History can help us answer these questions. And you're going to help me answer these questions too when we get to that point. But uh, uh, when you're trying to figure out why it is we're here, sometimes if we look back into history, we can figure things out. Okay, number one, history, explanation number one, scientism. Okay? And this is one you're going to help us out with a little bit here in a couple of slides. But a culture that puts unwarranted faith in, in this case, medical technology, but you have some other examples as well. And the, and the question scientism asks is why plan for, train for, or pass laws about death when medicine is so full of miracles? So that miracles and scientism, that language of religion kind of seeps in here on purpose because faith and miracle and religion and scientism all kind of go together. Okay, 1700s. Here we go back into history now. There was very little doctors could do, uh, uh, and, and they had almost no formal training. There were no medical schools in the 1700s, right? You read a couple of books, and you hung your shingle out. A little bit like law. It, didn't take, it wasn't until well into the 1800s where you could get an official law degree. Most people were self-taught. What they did oftentimes hastened one's demise. One of the biggest things they did back then was bleeding because they thought that the blood was causing your problems. So they'd open your vein up and just start draining blood out, hoping it would cure you. Here's a quote by a physician that you know this physician's name. You know his name, and you walk by him every day, by the way. Who, who would that be? You walk by this physician every day. Who? No. He's, a, he's standing out here. You walked by him on the way over to Denny today. Benjamin Rush. Dr. Benjamin Rush, this is his quote. Bleed not by ounces or in basins, but by pounds and by pailfuls. He loved to bleed people. Don't know why, but that was his thing. And uh, uh, he's like the father of bleeding. And, and it was his practices that carried on into the 1800s uh, and led to no end of problems. Here's one guy who had a problem. In, in, 19, in 1799, uh, George Washington 
So he gets on his horse. It's cold. It's rainy. He's running, riding through, the, through this terrible storm. And uh, he gets to where he's going, and he's got a really bad throat. And cultural anthropologists have looked back at the records and his symptoms and so forth, and they decided he probably had a case of strep throat. Not terminal. But his, uh, his doctor decided to bleed him. Now, you and I, the average person has one and a quarter gallons of blood in us. And this doctor took five pints. He bled him of half his blood supply, and he died the next day. <laughs> this is not good. So doctors not, you know, this is one reason why people had no faith in doctors, because they're just likely to kill you as not. Okay, now we're in the 1800s. Medicine shows, very common. And these are like circus events where people get up and they start pr- talking about crazy things that they can do. One of them uh, they used to use was blistering poultices. Poultice is a piece of cloth, and you lay some kind of toxic mustard or something. I think he's got mustard plaster here. Some kind of noxious thing, and you lay it on the belly, and all your skin welts up, and this is supposed to help. Never helped anybody, but they sold a lot of them. Leeches. So sometimes they open your vein to bleed you. Sometimes you put leeches on the skin to bleed. And and, uh, barbers did this quite a bit. Uh, barbers and doctors. I'm gonna. The, the the text here is Swedish leeches. We have on hand and are constantly receiving fresh importations of healthy Swedish and Hungarian leeches, which we can sell at the lowest market price, wholesale and retail. Symes Drug and Chemical Store, Canal Street, New Orleans. Right. This is very very common, and you can imagine didn't do so good. Snake oil. Who's ever heard of that? Snake oil. That phrase, that term. Everybody, right? Come on. Ever hear of snake oil? You never heard of snake? Really? Snake oil. You never heard this term? Snake oil salesman? All right. Well, I grew up with this term. And I see a lot of people around the room who are about my age or maybe uh, shaking their heads too. Snake oil was something you would say it was like a... it, It was a phrase to describe something that really didn't work. Well, they actually sold snake oil back then as, a, as an elixir to help people. Snake dung. i never seen snake dung. I don't know what it looks like, but they would go around, follow snakes around, and get their stuff. Uh, crow vomit was a big one, too. If you could get a crow to vomit and then feed it to somebody, this is supposed to help them. Uh, so uh, mercury, here's a little bottle right out of somebody's uh, drugstore. Uh, it's arsenic, arsenic pills. We know this is not such a good thing to take right now, but it was very common back then. Induced vomiting, they would stick the end of a knife, not the sharp end, the, the back end of a knife down into your throat into your, your, uh, yeah, and, and induce vomiting by uh, setting off that choking reflex. That was good. This is one I like, narcotics. Narcotics. So this is for kids, Actually, and this is what it says, beg soothing syrup for children during nursing and teething period cures, wind colic cramps, dysentery, canker sore mouth, and banishes pain, an an invaluable medicine for all children. There's cocaine in this, okay? Uh, So, so yeah, I'm sure it handles pain, uh, but maybe not such a good thing for teething children. Enemas, one of my favorites. Okay, and this is actual drawing from a medical textbook, uh, how, to, how to build an enema if you don't have one, an enema-inducing machine. Uh, what would they put up there? Tobacco smoke was a common. Urine, oh, that's good. And uh, uh, coffee enemas, not uncommon. Uh, and then olive oil. So why these things? I don't know. But there are medical textbooks from the 1800s that list, especially the most common, I think, was tobacco smoke and then coffee second. I haven't read that much about urine and olive oil, but they're in there. Then there's this. This comes out of the British Medical Journal, September 4th, 1858. Port wine enemata as a substitute for transfusion of blood in case of postpartum hemorrhage. Port wine. So you know where the you know where the saying comes from. Bottoms up. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. Okay, so uh, 
something, this is how bad medicine was. Medicine was so bad that they oftentimes misdiagnosed death. Now, how do we know that? Because from time to time, they'd exhume a body, you know, to recover a ring or to do, oh, we buried the ring, oh, geez, we can get that up. And what you would see is claw marks on the top of the, on the, top of the coffin. And word of this spread through the country to the point where this guy came up with a patent for a coffin that, got, once it got buried, it had a string leading up to a bell. So if you weren't really dead, and you were in the coffin, and you woke up, you could just like ring that little bell and hope somebody were here. That's nuts. It's nuts, but the guy got a patent for that because there was that problem. Okay, here's a question. What do all these people have in common? Just think about that for a second. What do they all have in common? Obviously, that's not da Vinci. That's a picture, right? He painted that picture. Here's what they have in common. Life expectancy for all of those people was about 35 years. Back to recorded time, well into the BCs, people lived about 35 years. 32, 34, 35. That was the shelf. That was the limit. Now, it didn't mean you hit 35 and fell over. But that was the average age that people died, 35. So here we go, 35, 200, 400, 600, 800, through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, right up to 1800. And then it's 19, you see it starting to dip up. That's just before 1900. Went from 35 to 36. Wow, big deal. Now, 19, what happens in 1900 to 2000? The last 100 years, then go straight up, 75, 75, in 100 years, when no advances had been made in death uh, for thousands of years previous. So this guy, who you recognize, he's 72. Does that mean he's going to die at 75? What do you think his average life expectancy is? He made it to 72. Any ideas? Yeah, good. That's it. Donald is going to live to 85. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to get to 85 and fall over either. He could fall over tomorrow or he could live to 90. But on average, somebody 72 is going to live to 85. So this is pretty incredible stuff. All right? So since 1900, life expectancy increased two and a half, two and a half days for every week. For about every four months, you had another year. So the idea here is if you could get it year for year, then you'd never die, right? That would be good. Uh, and I don't think we're going to get there. But, but the point is, that's a pretty dramatic change. Something else that was happening in this time period. Now, we're going to start in 1900. My grandmother, both my grandmothers and all of their siblings and everybody they ever knew, they are all born at home, Okay? all born at home. In 1900, they were born in the end of the 1800s, and just into the 1900s. In 1900, only 5% of babies were born in a hospital. By 1960, 87%. Now this red bar is kind of interesting, cesarean section. So now they're going to start delivering uh, by C-section, and then in the next 40 years, C-section takes off. So right now, we're in the 99% range. Uh, and, and about half of that 1% that isn't born in the hospital, they get born in a cab on the way, right? It, it, it may, there's a half a percent who choose to uh, have their children at home with a midwife or whatever. But medicine has medicalized birth to the point where it's very uncommon not to be in a hospital. And one out of three babies are born with a very significant medical procedure called cesarean section. How did we get here? Who knows who that is? Any, any guesses? Famous nurse. Who's the most famous nurse in the world? Oh, second most famous nurse. Come on. Famous nurse. Florence. Florence Nightingale, right? Florence Nightingale, uh, uh, it's bizarre. 
She was the one who tipped this curve up like this, and it was antiseptic conditions. You know what that means? That means wash your hands. Wash your hands. Doctors didn't wash their hands in the 1860s and 70s. They would just go from patient to patient to patient and never wash their hands. This, I, I took this just the other day. I was over in Hershey Medical Center. It's in, the, it's in the elevator, and these signs are everywhere. Clean hands save lives. Thank you, Florence Nightingale. That saved so many lives because nobody was, people stopped transmitting infectious disease from one person to another. So a really big deal. And then the second thing that happens, right around 1900, you get X-ray, EKG, EEG, vaccine transfusions, and the birth of the modern hospital. Before 1900, there was no modern hospital. The word hospital existed, but it was for poor people. All right? Poor people who had no family, because if you were sick, you were home. And if you didn't have family, you would go to a hospital. But the hospital was more of a poorhouse. Why? because the doctors weren't washing their hands, 30% of some people in some hospitals would die per year, right? 15% of the staff would die per year just because they're all getting each other sick. So it's not a really good place to be. The re it's kind of interesting. The reason why the hospital comes along is the, is the x-ray machine. X-ray machine's a big machine, very expensive, and doctors couldn't afford it. So one doctor couldn't afford an x-ray machine, uh, but they got together and said, hey, we'll get together. Well, who's going to have it? I want it at my place. No, I want it at my place. We'll put it in a common place. That's the first hospital. Okay? So uh, right along then, uh, uh, telephones come along. And now you could call, and you know, the doctors stop traveling out to patients, and they start centralizing, and it changes the face of medicine. This is another big one, antibiotics. Now we're in the 1920s. The leading cause of death in 1900, infectious disease. Things that you and I, I mean, we, many of us would have died already. I would have died half a dozen times because I got some infectious disease. Got pneumonia, got tetanus, and I didn't have tetanus. Uh, uh, but some kind of really bad infection, if you couldn't treat it, you just, you'd just get a fever and you'd die. Okay, so uh, sulfinamide and uh, uh, penicillin and all of these things that come along right about 1920s, 1930s, huge. Then uh, now we're up to the 1960s, transplants, pacemakers, ultrasound, CPR. Now CPR isn't a big technology, right? You just go and you, you pump somebody's chest. But the whole concept that you could start somebody's heart with compressions like that it was a new idea in the 1960s. MRI tube feeding. So something we're going to talk about on Monday, tube feeding. This whole idea of getting a tube into the stomach, you had to have really small bore plastic tubes, and that plastic technology didn't come along until the 1960s. And then C-section, right? So they start C-sections back in the 30s, but they really take off in the 60s. And then we're up here with PET scan, CT, gene therapy, and uh, uh, no end of, you know, they have 3D visualization now for, uh, uh, for doing surgeries and so forth. So history explanation, number one, scientism. Why plan for, train for, or pass laws about death when medicine's so full of miracles? So this is where your chance comes in. What other areas of the world is there technology that just kind of blinds us, and we just blindly maybe believe that everything is going to be okay. Okay? Yes, sir. All right, so um, I talked about um, Julie Olson came in for our lecture um, about global warming and how our society advances technologically uh, very fast, but yet we still have global warming and it affects the environment as we know today. Um, as technology increases, so does the pollution in the air, but humans still put their blind faith in technology when we see it fail still. Okay. So Julia Olson, save, uh, save our... Um, it was uh, children versus... Uh, it was Julia versus United States. Right. The, 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 uh, 
uh, the, the, the court case with the young uh, people who are suing the government for not, uh, not being more cognizant of and passing laws that would help the environment. Maybe you were talking about something. Would, well, I mentioned how the U.S. has put gas stations all over the country, and if there were just stations to charge your car, people would drive electric cars over cars and use gas. Okay. And we blindly just follow that. We buy gas cars that take gas rather than electric cars because we don't have that option. So they're starting to put that option in gas stations, but not every gas station has that. Okay. That's a good one. Other ones? Social media. Well, yeah, Aya. Um, yeah, I talked about social media and the internet in general and people putting their blind faith into just believing what they read on the internet or the media when often the media especially is kind of shaped or altered to fit a certain idea or view and shape the way that people think about certain ideas or topics and um, people don't always get the full story and they'll just believe whatever they see when often you know, not everything you find on the internet is true or accurate, and the same thing with the media. Okay, that's a good one. Chaz, you had one. What do you got? Yeah, um, I just think many people put so much of the faith in technology, uh, mostly social media. Um, people are told all the time that it can be dangerous, uh, whatever you post can be there forever. So uh, it's just a big deal in society today, but people don't realize that the effects of social media can lead to less time reality and other terrible consequences. Okay. MJ, what do you have? Um, I talked about um, smartphones because like, everybody nowadays, like almost everyone has a smartphone, and like, no one really knows like, how they could be affecting your body or like, the different effects they could have in the long run um, to people's minds, especially because younger and younger generations are exposed to it so much earlier. Right. But, like, we see all the amazing things it can do and don't really question it. Yeah. That's a good one. You know, I just thought of one, just as you were talking, um, what do you call those little scooters, Lime and those little electric scooters? Lime is one. What's another? Bird. Bird, yeah. So I got, I, I was out in Santa Monica. I got on one of those things and I just trusted I saw everybody else. I saw old people. I'm not old. Uh, I, I saw old people getting on these things, and I'm going, must be fine. And so I signed up and swiped my card, get on one of these things. And then two weeks later, I find out somebody, uh, you know, well, first of all, I have terrible maintenance, and people are signing up to maintain these things by watching YouTube videos. There's more faith in technology, I guess. And, uh, and, and they're really unreliable. And there have been a number of deaths, and there are emergency room physicians all around the country banding together to petition municipalities to limit these things and, or, or to eliminate them because uh, they're inherently dangerous. But I saw this thing, and I said, cool, works good, got on it, easy, it must be okay. And it's not, okay? So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's just kind of interesting that it, it's part of our culture, though, and the culture is a function of our history. It's the change from couldn't do anything and probably hurt you to, oh, my God, that, that, that line is going straight up. I just believe. And so this is where you've seen this, too. Uh, this is where we get back to the idea that uh, uh, we believe TV. So this is a little bit like, uh, was it Aya, were you talking about believing now, who's conspiracy theorist uh, in talking about social media and believing what we read? Who did that one? That was you, right? Okay, so, so this is TV, CPR attempts, believing what you see on TV, 75% of CPR attempts. Now, this is all over. I've got a picture here of a, of a uh, hospital, but this is you know, people who go down on the street and so forth. 75 survive when it's really only 40. So uh, about half. And then you have... People who do arrest in the hospital, two-thirds of them, two-thirds of them survive on TV, and we believe that even though 15 per, only 15% survive to leave the hospital. So it's not so good. 25, here's, here's the real scientism, though. 25% of older people, 65 and older, 25% think they have a 90% chance of survival. And, uh, and 81% think they have a 50% chance of survival. But if you're old and you've got cancer and you're in the ICU, your chances of survival are about 1%. Uh, 
If you're old, in the ICU, with cancer, on a ventilator to help you breathe, and on medications to help thin out your blood, it's, it's uh, essentially zero. So we have all this faith in technology, but this is the thing. It's not well-placed, necessarily. Last thing here, cryonics. I'm going to show you a picture of a baseball. Who's our baseball people? Who's, who likes baseball? Okay. Are you, are you good with recognizing faces? Okay, we'll see her in a second. Cryonics is where you freeze the body uh, in hopes of, you know, at some future point, they will figure out what killed you and then bring you back, thaw you out and treat you. Uh, and you can get it for 28000 or 35000 They got different plans. Uh, and this guy. Ted Williams. Ted Williams is frozen. They screwed it up, though. He's in two pieces. They took his head off, and that's in one place, and then his body is someplace else. I know, it's a little gross, but Ted Williams thought this was a good idea. Actually decided his whole family should do this, and they weren't so much into that. So he did it, but his family kind of bought. Get it? All right, okay. Um, uh, so, so this is kind of where we're at. You know, doctors, uh, it's almost like doctors can fix your age. Right? Uh, all your tests came back good. I see you're 57. I'd like to get that number down a little bit. So, history explanation number one, scientism, a culture that puts unwarranted faith in medical technology. It's a function of our historical experience. It is this dramatic change starting in 1900 when nobody trusted a doctor to the point now where you just believe it's become a faith. Okay, we got some other examples. Okay, here's the other one I wanted to cover. Denial of death. Belief that death is not real, need not be dealt with. Okay, back into history. 1800s, United States is an agricultural society. The big cities, Boston, Charleston was one of the biggest cities back then, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, only a, only a couple thousand people. Most people lived out in the country. And what did that mean? They lived on farms. And when they live on farms, you live around animals. And when you live around animals, you see them born, you see them die. So this is like, I'm not going to sing Lion King, but uh, uh, this is like the cycle of life. It's right there in front of you, right? You see it all day long. You got animals living, you got animals dying, and you have family members dying. So this is a picture of the Waltons. Anybody know this television show? Probably not. It's a, it was a show that ran for like 20, 15 years or something back when I was growing up. Uh, but this is a multi-generational family all living under one roof. And the important point here is that that was very common back then. By the way, who's going to go home? Who's, whose dream is it to live with your parents after graduation? Who's dreaming of that dream? No, that's not a good dream, right? That's a bad dream. We call that a nightmare. Uh, uh, who, let me ask you this question. Who has grandparents living with them right now? One, two. Okay. Back then, you know what the question would be, or the, the answer would be, where else would they live? Of course they live with us. Grandparents don't live by themselves. So the, the point of multi-generational families is when grandma and grandpa die, they die at home. And you see that. And you're connected to death in that way. So uh, this is what dying was like back in the 1800s. Like I said, hospitals didn't come around until 1900. And the only people who went to hospital were people who didn't have a family. Everybody else died at home. Probably 95% of, of Americans died at home in the 1800s, right through, uh, uh, up until and after the Civil War. Death watch. Who's heard, who's heard that term, death watch? I'm not going to call you on a promise. Nobody's heard this word. Okay, death watch is sitting by somebody who's dying. Just being present, being there with them. You don't want them to die alone. So death watch was something that families did. And everybody in the family participated, right down to the littlest of children. So going back to the Walton's picture, all those kids would be participating in the death watch. 
So when grandma got old and sick and frail and then caught pneumonia, the littlest of children would sit next to grandma and take shifts along with everybody. And so people knew what death looked like. Death watch after. Now this is a little harder to understand, but after the person passed, you would sit there with them for 24 to 48 hours. Why? Why would you sit with that person after they've died for 24 to 48 hours? Got throw it out. Give me some ideas. Any ideas? Why sit next to a dead body? Nancy. They might not actually be dead. Bingo. That's number one. Remember this worry about people getting buried alive? So, and, and you'd say, well, geez, just listen to their heart. Well, few people had stethoscopes back then, and there were these stories of people being buried alive. And so you just want to make sure this person's really dead. So that's number one. Uh, give me another one. What are you worried about if you've got a dead body up in the bedroom on a farm? Animals. Yeah. You got varmints. So you've got you to sit there to shoo away the mice and the bigger mice that we call rats. You had to take care. There was also the superstition. Who wants to be wandering around in your house with a dead person upstairs by themselves? So death watch before, death watch after. Would the kids take, play, take part in that? You bet. They'd be sitting right there because everybody had to pitch in and do their part. Everyone was involved. The wake. The wake would take place at home. Why wouldn't you call the funeral director? They didn't have funeral directors. They didn't have phones. So you'd have to yell, I guess. But no, so, so there's no funeral director. right? Now, what was the name of the room where you would hold your wake? Any ideas? The what? Cold room? What's cold room? Cold room, C O L D. I never heard that. Any other ideas? Where do you go now? The funeral, funeral home, or the funeral parlor? So many of these homes had parlor rooms, and this is where they would bring the body and uh, uh, and, and wake the body in the house the parlor. And that's why when funeral directors started industrializing their process, they called it the funeral parlor. They took the word from the name of the house uh, uh, and, and used that to uh, indicate what would happen there. The body would be prepared by the family. Well, what's that mean? That means they would wash the body, they would dress grandma, they would get her all fixed up and then take her down to the wake. So now you've got people who are completely in touch with death. They see it in the cycle of life. People are dying in the house. They're standing next to, or sitting next to people who die. They know what it looks like. They know what it smells like. They know what it feels like. It's a tactile thing. It's really a part of their life. And then they would build the casket. You can't order a casket. You can order a casket on Amazon now, right? Uh, uh, but back then, there was no casket makers. It wasn't until after the Civil War that people started commercially uh, selling caskets. So you build the casket, you dig the grave, and where would the grave site be? It would be in the backyard, right? There were no cemeteries. So the thing is, you would look out your window and see the graves of people who had passed. Point is, you're really in touch with death here. And so let's go up to the Great Depression. And this is when this movie or this, uh, was staged. And this guy in the middle, his name is John Boy. And he's not 32, but I'm just going to say, if that character gets to 32 years old, what are his losses going to be? He's going to lose both his grandparents. And he's probably going to lose both his parents. And he's probably going to lose three of his five siblings. Right? And so here he is at 32. He's lost seven people really close to him. 
you will be very unfortunate if that happens to you. It's not uncommon. When I got to 32, my number was two, one. It was one, my grandfather. It's very, very common for a 32-year-old to never have lost somebody in their immediate family. And so there again, I'm, I'm trying to describe a, a system or a, a, a social cultural history of the 1900s that, uh, where this was very rare. So death trajectory, last thing on this point, eight days. What does that mean? That means you get sick on Sunday, you're dead on Monday the, the next week. And it was oftentimes pneumonia. The leading cause of death in 1900 was infectious disease. Pneumonia, stomach flu, uh, other kinds of uh, 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 bacterial infections. That's what killed people, and it killed them pretty quickly. And so there's no managing death, right? It happens. You can't call a doctor because they're going to try to bleed you out, and, uh, and so you're dead in eight days. Okay, so death is rare today. Death trajectory is now measured in years. Most people die three and a half years after they were diagnosed with the thing that killed them. Okay? Plenty of people live 20 years. So it's, it's just a whole shallower flight path, and you just go off the shelf. And so there's a lot of reason not to worry about it. 32-year-old may not have lost a loved one yet. 80% of do- people die in a hospital or nursing home. So that means you don't see it anymore. You do not see a death anymore. It happens someplace else. And you get a call in the morning, Grandma died last night. Death watch at home, limited, almost never happens. And uh, family doesn't build the casket. And the wake is, not, is done in a funeral home, in a funeral parlor. All right, so here's another quick question. What do we call the parlor room now? Because when you build a house, you don't put a parlor in it. Any ideas? The living room. That's kind of interesting. So it was the death parlor... Now we have the living room. It's, it was amazing to me to think that you would, as, as, as spare as many of these houses were, you'd set a room aside mostly just to care for dead people and wake dead people. That's pretty profound. And then when that moves out, you create a living room. I think that's a lot of fun. Okay, so urban-suburban society, less than 2%. Uh, live on farms anymore, so we don't see the cycle of life, right? We, uh, we hide it. I had a student once, a couple years ago, we were talking about this, and she, was, she got a little weepy, and I said, what's the matter? And she said, I had a dog, um, I don't know, Bosco. I can't remember what the dog's name, Bosco. Had a dog, had this dog for years, went to college, came home at Christmas, and I, was, I wanted to see my family, but I want to see Bosco so bad. And I came in, and I said, Bosco! And the dog just kind of stood there and looked at her, and she said, Bosco! It wasn't Bosco. Bosco had died. And the family tried to buy a new dog that looked like Bosco because they didn't want her to be all upset. And she'd go, of course I know it's not Bosco. You know, she was just like, she was so upset with him. Point is, they were worried, cause, now, 1800s, Bosco dies. Well, yeah, so did 27 animals since you were gone. So uh, it's just a lot different now. We're all trying to shield each other from death. Multi-generational families, they're rare. We got two in here, but how many, Taj? How many uh, uh, grandparents? Just one? Just one? Who, who is it back here? How many grandparents? One. Just one. Okay. Uh, but you saw a whole, like, three generations there, but today mom and dad live and die someplace else. You know where they die? As Seinfeld told us, it's, uh, they're down in Del Boca Vista. Okay, so it is true, though. Most, you know, a lot of people get old and they just have to move to Florida. I think it's a law in some states. So infant mortality rate, one last thing here, 30% in 1760. One out of three babies going to die. And then it just drops and drops and drops and drops up until today. It's, it's like four-tenths of 1%. One in 250. So back then, in the 1800s, it was not uncommon to have five or six children. And so you had a 50-50 chance of losing one of them. Today, you have two children or less, 1.6, I think, is the average. 
and you have a 1 in 250 chance of losing that child. Still too high, but it's awfully rare occasion. Okay, so death is hidden, 1900. Hospitals have special ed elevators. I don't know if you know that. You, you've never seen a hearse pull up to a hospital. They don't pull up in the front. Any new hospital, they have a special entrance in the back. They have a special elevator. They also have special gurneys. Because people in the hospital don't want to see you wheeling a dead person out. Right? So they have these false bottom gurneys, and they throw a sheet over, and they go, oh, there's nothing. And they pay no attention to the gurney. And then they take it out the back elevator down, and then they wheel it in, and the thing is gone. Right? You don't... See, Think how different that is than sitting next to your grandmother or grandfather while they're in their last days. So they have special elevators, funeral directors. This is a good word. I like this word, director. It is something in here. They prepare the body. Um, Nick, you talked about this, didn't you? How you get makeup and all in... in you know what I'm talking about? I thought you would put that in there. Well, anyway... They wash, they dress, they do their makeup, uh, they do the hair, not going to do my hair, but uh, you know, a, a woman, they will have a hairdresser come in or they will do it, uh, they will actually apply makeup, and then of course you get staged, you get laid out like you're sleeping, and they put a pillow there, like what is that? I mean, to make, what? You know, it's, it's all about staging sleep, right? Got to make this look like a big sleep, this is not death. Uh, and then they, they stage everything, right? They set everything up. You come walking in. Who's been to a wake? I won't call on you. I'm just wondering. Yeah, you know how you, when you walk in and everything's all laid out and there's some music playing, right? And, uh, and, and then when you go to the grave, do you have to dig the grave? No. The grave has been dug. And what do they do with the dirt? They cover it? Where? You ever seen that like green carpet they put over the dirt? Why? They don't want you to see the dirt because the dirt might be too upsetting for us. Well, and then the backhoe is like driven away. You know what? Nobody wants to see the backhoe, right? It's true. They take the backhoe out behind the, someplace else. So, and, and the funeral director's in charge of all this, right? Choreograph the service. Funeral directors saying, okay, cars here, we're going here, people parking here, lining everybody up. You go in this car, you go in that car. This is all taken care of for us. We don't have to think about that. You know what the most common question funeral directors get? I talk to a lot of them. Most common question they get is, what do I say? So you walk up to the funeral director before you, before you meet the family and go, what do I say? So think about this. Funeral directors really running almost like a movie. Setting a stage, doing the makeup, giving people their lines, got the soundtrack, choreography, staging, blocking, the whole thing. That's why I put the funeral director on the chair. The, the point is, though, everything taken care of. We don't have to even mess with this. In California, they have a wake. Uh, uh, some of the funeral parlors have wakes where you can just drive up they have cameras inside, and it's almost like you're going to an ATM, a drive-up ATM, and you look in the camera, and you, you know, say, <laughs> and then off you go. And then a lot of them now, well, you can, you can participate by uh, you know, webcams. You don't even have to go. So we're a long way from death and where we were, and, uh, and that's why Woody Allen says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens to me. Uh, I showed you this the other day, dead-end streets, people getting rid of that word, D, D, that's bad. Let's get rid of it. Uh, let's go to road ends. Let's go to no outlet. All right, this is the quiz I was waiting for. What do you send somebody when they're having a wedding? Wedding card. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations on your wedding. And then birthday card. Happy birthday card. Yeah, happy, happy, happy birthday. How about graduate? This is going to happen to you eventually. Yes, congratulations, happy graduation. And then when you die. Ain't no death card. Do not say death card. So what do we got here? Deepest sympathy. Our thoughts are with you. Sorry to hear your news. 
praying for you in your loss. This next one I really like. I don't understand it. The welcome home. Um, you'll have to help me with that. I don't understand the welcome home thing. Point is, we have a word for death cards. They're called sympathy cards because we don't see the D word because that's scary. That's a very, very scary thing, and so we just don't talk about it. So we have a euphemism for it. So here's one last thing I want to share with you, Spurlus. It was a Dutch film, and uh, when is it, 1988, won the best film of the year in, in, uh, um, uh, in Dutchland, Netherlands. And, uh, and, and so here's the plot in 20 seconds. Uh, the two characters on the top, boyfriend and girlfriend, the nasty guy down below is, he's just bad, he's bad as can be. And um, he kidnaps the girl. And the guy spends a whole movie trying to find them. You know, and he's sending all kinds of taunting messages. She's here, she's there. Do you want to see her? You want to hear her? And finally, it ends up in the cemetery. Okay, so they're in the cemetery. And the good guy in the middle goes to the bad guy and goes, where is she? Where is she? And he, and he goes, she's buried alive. The shovel's over there. Dig her up if you want. He goes, blah! And he starts digging and digging and digging. He forgets the back. The, the guy's just standing there watching. He's digging. And he finally gets his girlfriend. And she's like, blah, blah. You know, she's alive. She's gasping for breath. And, and the bad guy gets a shovel and whacks the guy on the head he falls in with his girlfriend, he shovels the dirt on, and, and that's the end of the movie. And so, but it got the best movie. So, uh, so they brought it to the United States. Yeah, there she goes. They both die. I'm sorry. Um, uh, but you're going to watch that anyway, because it's in Dutch. So then they bring it to the United States. Instead of Spurlus, they translate to vanishing. So you, you know these guys up here? He's got a big beard now, but who's on top? You, Jeff Bridges? I don't know the woman. I can't remember her, but Kiefer Sutherland's the bad guy. Okay? So they, they run the movie the same way as Spurloose was, and what do Americans do? <laughs> we don't want to see that movie. We do not want to see that movie because the good guys die. And so in The Vanishing, sorry, but you know, here's your spoiler, at the very end, Kiefer Sutherland gets up, and of course, Jeff Bridges grabs a shovel, bangs Kiefer on the head. Kiefer falls in. The girl gets out, and they cover Kiefer up. So we can't deal with it, right? But the, the really interesting thing I got thinking about this is look at the poster on the left. The poster on the left is of the cute little girl. They're just setting you up, and then bang, they kill her. But on the right... It's the evil guy kind of gets you going, but evil guy not going to win. Not in the United States, right? Evil guy dies in the United States. Good people win. And so this is really, we're a little different in this way, this whole denial of death thing. And so this, I pulled some of your, uh, some of the data or some of the pictures that you guys had got here. Fountain of Youth in the United States, ever-changing business of anti-aging so these are some. These came from your assignments. Crow's feet, got to get rid of them. Botox, age-defying. Jack Black, never heard of him. Uh, new twist on anti-aging. I don't know what that is. Some kind of cream. Fight sagging. I don't know what's sagging, but you can fight it with L'Oreal. Um, super-powered. Does this remind you anything of the crazy stuff we saw in the 1800s? I mean, this is almost like leeches to me, because uh, none of this stuff really works, I don't think. Uh, oh, well, then you got your plastic surgeries, and you got your London hospital with whole body cryotherapy. I think they just stick you in a refrigerator or something. It's just really, uh, really weird. Uh, yeah, you can go down to Amazon, collagen face moisturizer, some more Botox. These two women, are they really the same? That's BS. Come on. This was yours, I think, Carly. Did you put a video? Who had the video? There's no way they're the same, is there? I don't know, but that's what the claim was. Quick, quick lift. Yeah, um, I don't know. But in any case, here's the only one that used the D word. 
I'm sure the marketing department was going, do we use it? I don't know. You know, but you just never see that. And, and I will give $50, $50 to anybody who can find me a sympathy card that uses a D word. Death, dying, any, anything, any permutation of D, 50 bucks to you. You heard it here, and I'm on tape, so I mean, I, I, gotta, I gotta pay up, right? Uh, uh, so cheat, death, and then this one kind of stuck out at me. $2,000 for a bottle of cream? I don't know, man. That's People will go to any lengths. Now, it is 488 milliliters, so I guess maybe it's worth it. I don't know. This, is a la- this was yours, Carly, I think. The pet? Was it? Yeah. So, so here's, a, here's a service called Perpetuate, and you can get some blood and hair from your pet and maybe clone the pet somewhere down the road. And, uh, yeah, I mean, talk about not wanting to give in. I mean, this is just really culturally strange. So history explanation number two, denial, belief that death is not real, need not be dealt with. So summarizing, advanced care planning is legal in every state, but we don't do it. People are not getting what they want at the end of life. We don't get physician-assisted suicide, even though it's supported. We have really bad care at the end of life. We're ranked number nine for care. We're ranked number 14 for training. We spend all of this money, and we don't get much for it. Why? And a lot of it can be explained by these two concepts, scientism and denial. I think that's it. All right. Thank you, guys. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. at midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.